Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast. This show is intended for information purposes only, but we're not experts. We're just two guys within the Bitcoin community. Bitcoin is an experiment in the separation of money and state. You'll be surprised how many will support that. And adoption is the only thing that matters. Stop eating like that. You can hear that. You can. Of course, we can fucking hear you All chewing. <laughs> All right, let me get one more bite. I need this in the morning. You can hear me eat this cereal in the microphone. You can hear no. that. <laughs> Sounds like you're running barefoot through a yard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm good now. Hey everybody, welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast, episode number 74. I'm your first host, Marcello. And I'm host number two, D. And I'm host number three, DP. That stands for Dr. Petty. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure it does. <laughs> uh, we're brought to you by uh, escrowmybits.com. It's fast, it's super easy, and it only takes three steps. All you got to do is register and deposit your Bitcoin, then the seller will ship the item buyer will check the goods and then they'll release the funds and they also offer bitcoin escrow with a locked exchange rate uh escrow my bits was created to solve all the problems wrong with the type of escrow services currently around because they only charge a small file escrow fee of one percent on all transactions and they even offer you the ability to split the fee with the other party while your funds are kept in a secure two of three multi-signature transaction they're going to hold one key and the rest is yours so to start that process go to their website and make sure you sign up for their newsletter to stay up to date so escrow your shit with escrow my bits escrow my bits dot no no one's jumping in oh yeah no one's jumping in i was, was kind of seeing how you're gonna do it just to see how All it right. goes <laughs> you gotta say you gotta we, sing, if you would have sang the jingle part in fact it's your turn to sing the jingle you just tried to yeah. failed it nailed it New sponsors. We're also brought to you by Athena Bitcoin, which is the most trusted name in Bitcoin ATMs. They're located in Houston, Fort Worth, Dallas. You know, we stay in Texas, so this is exciting for us personally. And seven other U.S. cities. So download the Athena Bitcoin wallet on the App Store or Google Play. And for specific locations and more information, visit AthenaBitcoin.com. Because they're always adding new locations. And we're also brought to you by Athena Bitcoin's portfolio company, Bitquick.co. That's .co. It is the secure, quick, and easy peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplace. You get Bitcoin for cash in as little as just three hours. That's all. Just the the length of Titanic, the movie. Bitquick (laughs) serves Bitcoiners since 2013. And that was actually the year I was introduced to Bitcoin. So that's a cool year. Where there's a bank, there's Bitquick. And D, if you want to talk about our affiliate program. Hold up, ma'am. They need a break. They need just a little break. That's a huge jump in sponsorship from one episode to another. Yeah, we'll we'll bring Woo. that. We'll bring the uh we'll bring the uh we'll bring it back a little bit later on in the show. We'll surprise you with a with our affiliate program. Yeah. So if you're gonna purchase some on Amazon, why don't you wait, damn it. Wait a little bit. No, no, I was going to go through it. I just wanted to take a breather from all the sponsorships. All right, I'm doing it now. If you're going to spend money on Amazon, go to purse.io, because why not? 
you're already spending the money. You might as well spend less of it. And here's the thing. When you spend less of it, a little bit of that that you spent goes to us. It's an affiliation program. That's how it works. Affiliation. You got to get affiliated. Hey. <laughs> isn't, that how, isn't that how the song goes? I was going to go with like affiliation station. Affiliation station is here. Anyways, we got to stop making these ridiculously dumb no, jingles. Purse.io. You go, you sign up through the banner on our website, bitcoinpodcast.com. You'll see the huge banner. If you don't, you're a tard. And, uh, but if you're not, click it, sign up, start spending money, kick back some money to us so we can make a better show because that's what we're trying to fucking do. All right. Let's get into the show. Uh, did you guys hear that Blockstream has announced a defensive patent strategy? Did you guys read about that? I read the titles, no but I didn't read into it. And I'm go ahead, Dave. Did you hear about it? I did not hear about this, but I'm elated to hear. Right. Well, um, I think that the Blockstream announced uh, some important steps that they're taking on the patent front and uh, why these defensive steps are necessary. And their hope is that others will see merit in their approach and kind of follow their lead. Um, the ecosystem in which they operate is changing rapidly and innovation that was once like squarely housed within the community and exclusively oriented towards its collective betterment is increasingly being conducted across like other companies around the world. And even though that growth is exciting, um, you know, there's a complex array of interests and some who may be more opportunistic in their thinking uh, when it comes to the, the property rights, intellectual property rights. So this kind of protects people a little bit. Uh, and it's a big deal. You know, it's it's interesting. I don't know which way to think about it because, I mean, uh, if so they say they're – from what I understand, this is only based on reading titles and not digging into anything, is that uh, they're – doing almost anti-patent troll measures to keep Bitcoiners safe from patent trolls, creating patents, and then trying to collect money from us way down the line and saying that they came up with it and they tie everything up in litigation, which people are doing, and patent trolls are a real thing and a serious problem in the scientific community, technology community, etc. And even Craig Wright, the famed almost Satoshi Nakamoto has been, I think, recently spending quite a bit of his time filing for patents, generalized patents for Bitcoin, so that maybe he could maybe do this later. I'm not, don't quote me on that, look into it, but from what I understood, that's what he's doing. And so if Blockstream is trying to do anti-patent laws, what's to keep them from becoming the patent trolls? Well, will Bitcoin implementations other than Core be sued following successful patent awards? I don't Are there know. any guarantees that they won't? I don't know. I haven't looked into what their patent, what they're filing for, or what I, I mean, right filed for. I know why this sort of thing is necessary, but I don't know if I necessarily like it because you can, if I'm understanding that you can, you can copyright the code, sure, but. A patent on the idea blocks someone solving the same problem with better code. Well, welcome to patent trolls, but somebody has to file for patents. Like, it's like the patents exist. Like, so you can file for patents based on an idea. If you have a lot of money, you can do you can more, you can generalize that idea a little more. Uh, and I like I've never personally filed for a patent, but 
I know that essentially the more generic and abstract your idea, the more expensive it is. But you can file for something specific and then ambiguously say that a new technology that was created later on infringes upon your patent and you then tie everything up in litigation. I'm like, and I, mm. and I don't know what's keeping Blockstream from being the arbiters of how Bitcoin is made through these anti-patent ideas. I mean, it, ultimately, they could be altruistic mm. and that the whole idea of what they're doing is trying to keep patent trolls out of the scenario and keep Bitcoiners safe. Or that's, the, that's what they're saying and trying to essentially tie things up so later on they can keep control of Bitcoin. I think it's too we're too far gone at a point where we can give them the benefit of the doubt that they are being altruistic. There's no way, man. Like they got all that VC investment and they're not exactly transparent about what they do. I've reached out to them a lot of times to try and get them to come on the show. They don't want to come on the show. They don't want to talk to people. I mean, I'd like to believe they have Bitcoin's best interests at heart, but they don't. Like, the only thing you can safely assume is that they don't, which is I why think, I've been... Go ahead. I think you bring up a great point. Like, if Facebook can drop a billion dollars to buy a VR company, then it's not too unlikely in my mind for a company to offer a billion or more for a blockchain company with solid patent ownership. And there, I think there are like an infinite number of trajectories that, you know, Borgstream could take to harm... Bitcoin development while furthering their own agenda. They they didn't need to make their plans public, but I'm pretty sure they did so because it will make a future event easier for them in some way. So I think you bring up a good point. You gotta you gotta keep that, in mind that whatever they're doing, they're doing as a company. Like Blockstream is a for profit company. And they have to have some type of end game in mind. And typically, at least based on historical events, I'm not terribly sure that Blockstream as a company is an altruistic company. They're there to make profit. And we need to look at what they're doing through the lens of a company trying to make profit and and kind of make our judgment and assessment of what they're doing based on that. When a company's trying to make profit, altruism is very far from their radar. They're just trying to make profit. So everybody listening right now who's a big corner, you might as well take that out of your like thought processes that Blockstream is doing anything altruistic. Now, what they could do could have a like a third degree effect to where it does end up benefiting Bitcoin in the community, but don't bank on it because nothing that they're doing is from altruism. It's to just straight make profit. All right. Well, I'm pretty ignorant on how Blockstream makes profit as of right now. Everyone is. How, how, what is their revenue source? Like, how, how are they making money and where are they getting money to file these patents? Because if they're filing generalized patents, that shit ain't cheap. They're getting ghost money, bro. They're they're trading Ethereum. To, <laughs> yeah, they're trading Ethereum to get this money to buy patents and troll patent trolls. Like I don't know, man. I think if one thing I think is if you're doing something and you're doing something earnestly, then you don't have to state that you're doing that something like, oh, we're doing this to combat the patent trolls. Well, uh, to their def- in their defense. They have a pretty terrible PR in terms of the 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 uh, motivations of Blockstream, right? If they are a company trying to do good things for the community, 
then every time they do something that is good for the community, they need to let the community know, right? In order to try and yeah. gain back some of that respect, some of that uh, confidence in what they're doing, because right now they 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 lack it. They don't have it. Uh, everyone is a little mm. bit. If they're not outright conspiracy theory, you know, people, they at least have some type of. I don't know what that company is up to, and I'm not quite sure I trust them. But the Bitcoin, the block, you know, the core is the main. So okay, cool. I can still use my Bitcoin, but. Underlying, I wouldn't say the majority of people who think about Blockstream are like, yeah, great company. So in order for them to gain that PR back, and this is something maybe Cello can come in a little better on as a marketer and a designer, they need to come in hard with anything that they do that's positive, which looks kind of shady. Mm. I think it does look kind of shady. You know what I think it could be? I think Elon Musk is shadow funding Blockstream to buy up all the patents so he could build a crazy ass financial tool that's going to change the world. Then he's going to release all the patents. That'd be great. That's my fucking conspiracy. It's a great conspiracy. I wish it were true. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. And he's going to take were... the patents to build a Mars currency. And then he's going to release the patents to build an interplanetary currency. Boom. Conspiracy. Solved. If there were one person Blocks. in the world that I would allow to become the tyrant of the world, it would be Elon Musk. <laughs> and if he no had turned way, out to man. be just like the super Dr. Evil of all time, I'd be like, ah, I was wrong. <laughs> I, I paid the price, but <laughs> I, I, he had a pretty good bet. <laughs> he made all the volcanoes go off at once, and then he went to Mars. <laughs> he fucked us, Elon. I don't know, Cello. What do you what do you think about this? Do you feel that? Do you feel that, like as a company, if the public opinion of how your company operates is negative, you need to do everything within your power to show that you're doing good things. Yeah, that's a PR nightmare, and that's the only way you're going to gain the trust back of 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 the people that use it. Their strategy is saying if you're interested in participating, you can email them directly. And they've benefited greatly from all the constructive discussion. So they're making you feel like you're a part of them winning. And and that is their, that's their PR strategy of making you feel tingly and good inside by including you in it. But is it true? I don't think it's true. I don't – I think if you email them – I think the core devs are going to do what they're going to do, and I think they're holding meetings every day. And I, I don't think there's someone reading emails and taking their advice to heart. And and um, you, you know, you're you're not going to get prior workshops and participants from academias and, and industry leaders. I mean, you're just going to get everyday people, and they're not going to listen to you. That's that's just my feeling. Well, as a company that that runs that, their Slack is, is open. As, yeah, their Slack is open. You can join them and, and join in the conversation. How much they pay attention to you, I have no idea. I haven't joined them. But as a company who's maintaining the development of Core, Bitcoin Core, is it their job to give a shit? Or I mean, they should essentially have an ideology of what they want to do. And then they should mm-hmm. go full force into it based on what their ide- ideology is. And the network of Bitcoin should decide whether or not they want to follow that ideology. There should be other ideologies as well. Unfortunately, there's not many. And there's yeah. some yeah. of the centralization aspect of everyone following core. 
And six, I think Classic has 6%, Core has 94%. And so there's a stalemate there in terms of um, getting things to go forward because you need 95% consensus. Percent of the nodes, percent of the mining? Uh, nodes. Nodes. I believe. Uh, I believe. You know, this is what I'd say to you guys listening. If you're at the point in, to, in the Bitcoin baptism where you can't get enough information about Bitcoin, because uh, I've been there where like you can just literally read Bitcoin articles for hours on end and not get tired for some reason, go join the core Slack. Go join Blockstream Slack. Maybe go put some pressure on them, some public pressure. Like what? W T F. I don't know, man. I'm, I think that they're not going to hesitate to enforce their patents against any entity that threatens their interests. They're just going to come up with whatever excuse to justify it. It's likely that they've already filed patent applications, and they're just coming out with this pledge to make it more, uh, you know, relatable to the community. Right, well, I, I think you're wasting your time. That's just scenario. me. If you have people like Craig Wright also filing for patents yeah. and maybe possibly getting patents because people don't know what the fuck they're talking about when they go to the patent office, who would you rather have in control of the patents? If people are going to be patent trolls, who do you want the patent trolls to be? Is it going to be Bitcoin Core who has the majority of consensus in terms of uh, what, what client's being run? Or is it going to be some fucking douche hat who's just trying to make money and cause problems man one if you think about every friggin fantasy movie you've ever seen trolls always suck ass so there's no such thing as a good troll we all know this two nobody has a patent on HTTPS so I mean or do they I like do do people? Maybe. I guess no. That was an ignorant statement listeners, for me to make. Maybe some people do. Listeners, yeah. if you know who has patents on certain internet technology that we are completely unaware of, write into us. Yeah, but yeah, it would definitely help us with this dilemma because right now, I think Blockstream is the shadow organization of Elon Musk, whose second in command is Craig Wright. And they're going to create an interplanetary monetary system, and they're going to go to Mars and have their own currency and make all the volcanoes on Earth go off at the yeah. same time. Good luck enforcing that patent in the middle of China. If it, good luck enforcing it anywhere outside the Blockstream office. It's meaningless. Mm. I don't know. Well, if you if you include so so, so what's happening is they're they're latching on and attaching links to a traditional infrastructure of of our justice system, our legal injustice system, which at this point has zero knowledge or very minimal knowledge of what Bitcoin and blockchain is. They only know how to enforce patents, right? And if you own a company that's infringing upon a patent, they don't care what the technology is. If you've broken the patent or infringing upon someone else's patent, they will persecute you or they'll, you know, you'll be punished for that. They don't care about the technology and what all it means to us because we're still somewhat of a small community amongst the world. And so you're, these, these organizations are creating links to a system that's outside of Bitcoin that has a lot of power that is also ignorant of Bitcoin for the most part. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. So you're saying that patents are there to raise... Like the barrier to entry, so that 
like an artificial monopoly can be enforced. The idea of patents is good, but when you have a technology like the internet, no one owns Bitcoin. No one owns the internet. But when people try try starting to create patents that say they own Bitcoin because the enforcers of patents don't understand that you can't own Bitcoin, then you have issues because the the enforcers don't understand this 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 gap of knowledge, right? And mm. so they may enforce and that's dangerous, a patent. Right? It gets you in the danger zone. You took it to Top Gun. Yeah, I did. Of course. Danger zone. I was thinking of Buster Rhymes. You know, like this is serious. It could make you do. You guys don't remember that song? Dangerous, so dangerous. Yeah, I remember that song. Well, then you can yeah. sing it with me, man. Don't leave me hanging <laughs> like that. I feel weird. <laughs> you know who doesn't remember that? Our guest, because he was like five when that song came out. <laughs> All right, yeah, let's switch over to that. That was a segue. That was, that was a segue. segue. I love Plus how the we rhymes do a to... great segue and then we call <laughs> out the segue. It just defeats the purpose. Anyways, yeah, so do your thing, because I tried to rob you of that last show. It's all good. You did. You did a great job, and I tried to come. I tried to bring the you know bring us back after the guests, and I'm not good at that. So I think you did an awesome job. You said, "Yeah, we're back up in this." Yes, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, this week, it, uh, I think we're putting the spotlight on the Augur project. Um, you know, Tony Swish, who's a regular, usually comes on and and talks about them. They're a decentralized prediction market based on Ethereum. And our guest, Joey Krug, is one of the top developers within the team. Uh, the project expects to have a full live release at some point this year, uh, but they were recently awarded a hundred grand fellowship award, uh, which should be a nice boost to the team's confidence and capital as the project moves forward. So uh, podcast regular Tony Swish joins us as we chat with Joey and get more info on all of the developments. Yeah, just to, right. just to, to verify... Joey is the is the he's a core developer, but he's 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 a CEO as well, isn't he? He's a founder of Augur. Uh, didn't he get like a promotion or something? I don't his, know. His, I feel like these are things we should have discussed beforehand. And yeah. here, <laughs> no, it's like, I want to. I'm looking at his. I'm looking at his LinkedIn right now. Core development, decentralized prediction markets, Augur.net. All it says is core development. But he's a founder. He's a and of here Augur. is the founder of Augur. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get started. We don't want to waste anyone's time. So, Joe, if you could uh, tell us who you are, introduce us, introduce uh, yourself to our listeners, what you do, and uh, just a little bit about who you are, you know, your story about how you got into Ethereum, got into Augur, things of that nature. Yeah, so I, I initially got into like cryptocurrencies in general um, in 2011 when I noticed a forum post on Overclock.net that was talking about basically you could earn money with your graphics card, um, and it didn't seem legit. But yeah. six weeks later, it was still the number one post on the forum, uh, so I decided to check it out and mine a bit of Bitcoin, and then <clears throat> didn't really play around with it much again in 2013. Um, when I worked on a a little like Bitcoin point of sale add-on, so if you wanted to, you know, go to a store and pay with Bitcoin, a store could theoretically, you know, get this add-on. It ran on Android, 
and you could pay them using like you know QR codes or NFC, or you could also pay using sound. Um, and that was mm-hmm. mainly for like iPhone users who didn't have NFC back then. I, I still don't think it's even open for developers yet. Um, but it, anyway, I, I ended up shelving that um, in 2014 uh, to work to work on Augur, and that was also the same time I left Pomona. I'd been going to school at Pomona College in, in Claremont, California, uh, studying CS there, um, and I basically left that and started working on Augur um, in like August of 2014. Um, and, and back then, the idea was to build a, a prediction market on top of Bitcoin, um, but we basically realized that we'd have to modify Bitcoin so much that we, we wouldn't really have gained much from its security model. Um, so we just ended up going with Ethereum. Awesome. That's a pretty big step to just go with Ethereum. It's such a young, uh, like Ethereum's almost childhood. Y'all were one of the first real large developers in the Ethereum network. Like, what, what made you decide that it was, it was a platform that you're willing to put so much effort into and that you're willing to trust it? Um, so the the main thing was I decided to try implementing what I just spent a month doing uh, on top of Bitcoin Core, um, and I was able to do it in a day. Uh, so that was a big, big <laughs> impetus um, to switch. The other thing I was kind of concerned about at the time was I wasn't that concerned about... Uh, I, I was pretty confident in, in the security model of, of Ethereum itself because I liked how they had clean room implementations. They got a lot of flack for that. Um, you know, implementing a Go client, a C++ client, and a Python client. They even have a Java one too now. They got a ton of flack for that. I think it was actually a good idea because that's that's how NASA writes a lot of their code um, because you're coding from the spec. So, yeah. you know, as long as you can verify the spec, it's very hard to have bugs that, that you don't notice the discrepancies between them. Yeah. So I really like that about the project. Um, the only thing I was kind of unsure about was that it had a an inflationary model for like the coins as opposed to a, a sort of inflationary then deflationary one that Bitcoin has. Um, but I ended up liking that as well because as a user of Ethereum, you know, you're paying gas to run computations. So it's it's in your best interest if the coin is inflationary rather than, you know, costing you more and more money, exponentially more money as, as uh, time goes on. You know, you mm-hmm. put something out there that I thought was really interesting and it, it, it really rings true to something that's, you know, stuff that's currently going on now with the DAO and how people are blaming the language of Ethereum for the the bugs that were exploited in the DAO and that you know the language isn't good enough for holding a lots of money a lot of these other things it's insecure how do you feel about that i mean it's i bitcoin's programming language is, is purposefully limited in the way that it works and solidity is solidity is is much more scripting open language general purpose language that's you know quote unquote turing complete but do you feel that it's lacking in some security issues or that's just pretty much poor programming? Um, so my, my thought on that is it's like the people who wrote the DAO code or whatever, they're not like bad programmers. They're actually very good programmers. So I, I wouldn't really consider it poor programming. Um, what I would consider it is I don't think the documentation for your languages on Ethereum is really there. Um, so you know, the way I kind of view it is like, imagine if you had written a program in Python and there was some very standard feature in the standard library of Python um, that if you use it how it was implemented by default, it could cause your problem program to have tons of problems in it. Um, the documentation of Python never told you about this and they never told you how to use it safely. 
and it never warned you that it could cause problems. That's kind of the scenario here. And and the, the thing is, Slurpee has this thing called it's called call dot value, and what it does is it allows you to call another smart contract and send it some money along um, with it. What people were doing is they were using this as a way to send money around, even though call dot value is really designed to do two things. It's designed to send money around, and it's designed to give another contract all the gas that you have to run computations. So there's another feature of, of Solidity and, and Serpent, the other language in Ethereum, called Send. And all it's designed to do is really to just send value, not to allow the, the receiving contract to run hardly any computations. So if people were more aware of this, you know, and like the documentation said, unless you're like, know what the heck you're doing and, and you know why you're calling it and everything, if you're just trying to send money around, you should probably just use send. This probably wouldn't have happened. Hmm. Interesting point. I haven't thought about that. So do you fear that sometimes, I guess, with, with Augur being built on top of Ethereum, uh, do you fear that maybe sometimes the barrier to entry on the, the learning curve is what maybe is going to prevent Augur from becoming, um, I guess, wildly used is that is that a fear that you might have um so i think the you know the the only case in which that is, is an issue is like if our ui uh at launch sucks um <laughs> which, that's not is, true you know, that's not the case very sure. well, um which you know it, it very well might um but the thing is you know you, you iterate on it and, and you approve it and eventually yeah i think it'll be easy enough for anyone to use um short term even if the UI is perfect, uh, you're still going to have one major barrier to entry, which is what's Ethereum? Um, mm-hmm. Why do I need Ether to, to run transactions? Why can't I use the dollar yeah. um, here in the UK? Why can't I use the pound? China, why can't I use the UN? Um, or the other big barrier is, well, I'm pretty confident you know, that uh, a Brexit's not going to happen, but if the price of Ethereum drops by half, which hey, it did a few weeks ago, <laughs> um, I could be right and still lose money. So those are like the huge barriers to entry I, I see as like big UX problems. But I think they're solvable um, with things like stable cryptocurrencies. There's, there's lots of people working on those. I think eventually, you know, someone's going to get one that's right, whether it's a, a completely decentralized one or one issued by, you know, heaven forbid, a, a central bank or something. <laughs> Oof. Wouldn't want that. But nevertheless, so do you have any... Like, how's the beta testing been going for Augur? The official beta test release was back in March, I believe. Um, how's it been going? Yeah, so the the beta basically has like four phases. Um, we released the first one in March. Um, the second one is like the core stuff where it's done. We're just basically testing it internally before we, you know, say that it's out. Um, so it, it's gone well. We've gotten a lot of good feedback, I think. Um, I guess the main issue we ran into is that like we figured out that we used to be able to trade through this thing called a market scoring rule. It's basically an equation that you would trade trade through, um, and it doesn't work very well on Ethereum because to do limit orders, um, which we just added, you know, fairly recently, um, basically, long story short, it ends up taking a ton of transactions to do it. So many transactions mm-hmm. on Ethereum that it actually, you know, in many cases would cost you more to place the trade than your actual trade is worth. So we basically ended up having to scrap that and uh, go back to a regular 
a regular standard order book like you see on any other exchange, you know, like any stock exchange or Bitcoin exchange or, or whatever. Yeah. So that was probably the most useful thing we've gotten out of the beta so far. Nice. So awesome. Um, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Tony. Well, I was actually thinking, I was actually, because for those out there who don't know, who maybe haven't heard an episode with me, I work with Joey with Augur, so I've kind of been trying to stay out of the Augur questions as there may be a conflict of interest. So actually, you know what, if you if you would like, go, go ahead, finish your questions off, because I wanted to ask him about the other topic that we brought Joey on here for today. So let's, go ahead, please. That's what I was about to bring up. So, I mean, you, <laughs> it's exactly what, there's, I, I, it, there's no conflict of interest here. We're all friends. I mean, it, we're, we're, everyone's interested in this type of thing. And y'all have more knowledge about what's happening and what's going on. And I think there's a giant interest in the community about what's happening with Augur and what it can possibly be. So the more people who know about it, who are talking to us about it, the better. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. And I think with everything with the DAO, it's, it's very interesting that there's been more discussion brought around it. And, you know, obviously we at Augur received a lot of, a lot of different questions and inquiries about how does this affect, how does this affect Augur? How does this affect what you're doing? And, um, I mean, it, in, in one way it does because it affects Ethereum, but in another way it really doesn't, which is pretty nice. And I guess that, that might be the last Augur question, and I will come in one, is, is how does this affect Augur? Did I basically sum it up, uh, Joey, or is there more depth to this or something maybe that came out after the past couple of weeks after we were inundated with these questions that, that maybe I didn't hear or that you noticed? Um, <clears throat> so, like... I guess you know the, the way it kind of affects Augur is that it means we should probably do do our release when when we launch you know slower uh, than just opening up the floodgates like something like the DAO did. Um, another thing it means is that it's you know we're always going to do a bug bounty program, um, but having you know a good chunk of money for um, someone who might have otherwise attacked you maliciously, um, but would instead be happy to get twenty k for for finding you know a huge vulnerability. Um, if, if the DAO had had, you know, a bug bounty like that, there's a decent chance that it would have been found, whether by, you know, someone who's just hacking around in it or an academic or, or something. So I think that's that's really important. And also, also uh, you know, scaling slowly with uh, sort of, you know, guardrails or training wheels as opposed to just launching it out there and, and assuming that it's bug-free because statistically it's, it's probably not. You bring up another good point in that, that this... If anything, the, the DAO and what's happened and what's going to continue to happen from here on out is that it, it gave a huge lesson in um, being careful in what you're doing. For the longest time, Ethereum was just, you know, bell of the ball. And we're, you know, we're, we're fucking kicking ass. We're doing all kinds of good shit. And then they did this. It blew up in everyone's faces in a way like because it, it got incredibly huge, incredibly fast. And then the bug brought it down incredibly fast as well. And it taught us a lot of lessons in terms of how we need to put fail-safes and mechanisms of um, fixing ourselves if such thing were to happen and uh, and how much we need to put a lot of emphasis and security in dealing with these types of things because people will try and hack you. That's the, a number one rule you can always try and rely on is that someone's either trying to gain your system or hack into you and steal your money. Yep. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Hmm. To take it to Augur, what is the strangest prediction i guess market you've seen somebody build is there any that you laughed at like just ridiculous prediction markets um one i thought was kind of funny was someone had uh, i don't remember their name but it was like something like you know will george make it to work on time this morning 
you know, it's obviously <laughs> obviously an indeterminate market because the only person who knows that is George and his boss. But I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, you know, it wouldn't happen when it's real money, but it was funny no. to see. <laughs> That's right. I wanted to create some just stupid markets, but I haven't gotten around to it. Um, so, so I guess you need We're going to bring something up. Why don't you go ahead and, and, and uh, hit us with it? Sure. Uh, well, the thing I was going to say is for those who don't know, Joey was actually recently named a 2016 Teal Fellow. And I wanted to say, as uh, as his colleague and someone who's known him since January of last year, uh, there's no one I know more deserving, and I wanted to talk with him a little bit about it because it's a pretty prestigious honor. And uh, the the other one in the in the Bitcoin blockchain space that I know has received it was Vitalik Buterin from uh, Ethereum. So I think I think it would be interesting for the audience to kind of hear not just what what the what the fellowship means or what it is and what Joey gets out of it but a little bit of the process. So Joey, can you give us a little bit of a ba- of background about what it is and what you get and and basically after that we'll go into kind of the process and and how that all happened. Yeah, so the the Teal Fellowship is basically a, it's a program uh it's, it's like a, you know, nonprofit venture set up by Peter Thiel. Uh, he's, he's a venture capitalist who runs Founders Fund and, and also one of the founders of PayPal. Um, and basically what the idea is, you know, is that there are probably, this is thesis, people are probably working on very cool things that they don't necessarily need to be in, like, university to be able to do. Um, and so the Teal Fellowship basically tries to find people who are doing that sort of thing um, and provides them with, like, mentorship advice um, and also a $100,000 grant. Hmm. Hot fire. That's nice. So, absolutely. Go ahead, go ahead. Hell of a job getting that. That's and it's that's what's really great and you definitely deserve it from the things that you built. What do you plan on doing with it? Um <clears throat> so I you know what what's what's most useful I think to me is like two things. Um one is like the fellowship community, so basically all the other Teal fellows, and and like all the resources that you know that are basically available there. Um, <clears throat> so basically, you know, they're always there if you need any advice about something. You know, whether it's you know a technical problem or, or a business problem you're having, um, things things like that I think are, are really useful. I think, I mean, based on the potentiality of of Augur and the things that you're trying to build. 100k isn't a ton of money. It's a little bit of breathing room to you know to allow you to focus on things in the future without having to worry about money for a, you know a certain short amount of time. Because the amount of money that you could potentially make from Augur and things around Augur is drastically more than that. If I understand these things correctly, maybe I'm maybe I'm ballparking a little too far on this one. No, I think I think you're right. You know, the the 100k is basically, you know, it's it's a grant, so you don't have to, you know, worry about about things while you're trying to build something, basically. And so, yeah, in that in that, in that sense, that the the community around this this fellowship program is is vastly more important or more um, useful to you, especially moving forward. If you make you you build these relationships in the community and and and, uh, and you know, make good friends in good places. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what's really cool. There's there's so many cool people in it who are working on really cool projects. Really interesting projects. Yeah. So 
let's start at the beginning. When when did you apply for this, and what what basically came up and said, okay, I should go for this? Like, what was your thought process in the first day that you applied and filled out the application, or however you need to start to apply? Um, so uh, basically, one of my friends, uh, a guy named Jeremy, basically just said, hey, why don't you apply to the Teal Fellowship? Um, because Vitalik had been to our house a couple of months prior. Um, and he had a shirt on that said it. That, that's when we actually first learned about it. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it if it's not too long of an application. Because I didn't, I didn't think the chances of me getting it were very high. So I was like, you know, if, it, if this takes like five hours to fill out, I'd rather send my time coding on Augur. Um, it turns out the application is actually very short. Um, and I was able to fill it out pretty quickly. It, it just asked some, you know, very basic questions. Um, and then ask, what's your, what are you working on? And, uh, you know, that, that was, of course, easy for me to answer because I like Augur so much. Um, and then after that, I didn't really hear anything until like maybe six months later in uh, November when they contacted me about, they had these things called the Teal Fellowship Summits. Um, and those those are actually really cool. Um, basically, they, they have around 50 people and they, and they fly you out to San Francisco, uh, which is really nice because, you know, you don't have to pay for the ticket or anything. They do. Um, and you get to spend a weekend with people who they think are working on very cool things um and <clears throat> that was really fun um so i went to one of those in november and then they basically emailed me and said um you know we like what you're doing but uh we didn't accept you this round but uh you know we might next time is basically what it said <laughs> um and then they had another one of these summits in like april i think um and there, there are a lot of interesting people on in that one, um, especially from, from for some reason. You Waterloo has a lot of cool startups at it. Um, Waterloo's like doing were, big things. Yeah, yeah. Like if I were an investor, I, I would be looking at at you Waterloo. Um, and Vitalik, you know, is out of there too. Um, and so yeah, so they had another summit in April. I went to that one, and then about a month later, I got I got a call from Blake, uh, who's one of the people who runs the fellowship, and then uh, they announced it a few weeks later. That's very cool, and I think I think it's so I think it's so neat that uh, that the two that I've that I know of are in this are in this area or this area in you know Ethereum, and, and because it's something I did know about and I was aware of. Of course, I'm way too old to even apply, nor would I even come close to getting it. But um, <laughs> with that with that all said, I, I think it's so cool you did because it, it, I remember when they when uh, Peter Thiel announced it that it was very controversial because you got a lot of those you know annoying salon think pieces that are like what a terrible human being is for encouraging people to drop out of school. And it was like, well, that's not really what it's about, you know, but, it, but it, that's the way they kind of spun it. And um, so, so I was definitely aware of it, but it's so, it's so much cooler to, to know someone and even work with someone that, that has it. And, and, and when I heard some of the resources that you mentioned that were available, I was even blown away because I, I was under the impression it was like, okay, here's a check to work on whatever you're working on. And, and that was it. But it sounds like other, the other levels of support that they're giving you, or areas of support they're giving you could even be more valuable than that in the long run, um, depending on you know how you use it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I actually uh, I spent the vast majority of my life in, in 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 school. I have a PhD, and I went through all all the years, probably a little more than I probably should have, getting getting it. Uh, and I would probably still I, I don't necessarily think that everyone should go to college. There's a lot of opportunities if, for people to do things that don't require a college degree, but because 
that kind of society pushes us to say that's the next step and they say you know it's it's, it's the new um, high school diploma to get a bachelor's there's a lot of people who go to college get a bachelor's and don't learn anything and then they end up accruing way too much money and programs like this who are trying to really help people who are going to college but also working on something that's probably a lot more important is in my opinion really good and and, and things that try and try and help you educate without having to you know accrue a large debt or put you in a focus that's not necessarily like learning uh, things that may or may not help you in the future I, I'm not I'm not terribly sure that traditional college route is the best route unless you know exactly what you're trying to go do yeah. how do y'all feel about something like that yeah I think um, so, somebody at the fellowship I don't remember who told me that um, <clears throat> recently they've been getting a lot a lot more like applicants to people who have already dropped out basically um, hmm. which is depending on how you look at it either you know if you're if you're super academic and a professor you might look at that as a bad thing um but of course at that fellowship they view it as a positive because they're basically they basically say you know maybe the fellowships help encouraging people to say that you know college might necessarily not necessarily be right for them um and, and so that's kind of cool because basically they, somebody told me in, in the early days they kind of had to convince people to drop out um but now their applicants a lot of them already have or are on leave of absences Mm. That sucks. Yeah, how do you feel about this, D? You're the one that has a background in that, and well, not not obviously in this area, but a little bit in education. I'm curious to what you think. Uh man, that's a tricky question. Uh, I I do see that now nowadays, maybe it it isn't a hundred percent necessary for everyone to go to college, um, especially with the workforce changing so dynamically. And especially if it leaning towards software so much and the world needing so many computer programmers and, and people that can work with hardware alike, uh, a lot of that is, is trade skills that you can learn in like an uh, apprenticeship or something of that nature. Um, when it comes to just people being generally educated, I would love it if people... I mean, I just came from teaching high school. I would, I would love it if they could just get to that level. I don't think necessarily everyone needs to get to college, but at least be as educated as like a college freshman. I don't know. That would help. Um, but I mean, I think if you got it and you and you don't need to go to school, then you shouldn't need to. Um, there's there's route there's routes to success. So, well, I'm happy. Different that- strokes. For different folks is what I'll say. Yeah, I'm happy that there's, there's more avenues for people who are focused and know exactly what they want to do outside of traditional academia. Don't get me wrong. I love people. I love school. I've been in school my whole life. I'm still in school as a place of postdoc. It, I, I will continue to learn, but now there are a lot more avenues for me to learn that I don't have to go to a class to do. I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. I can go through some type of um, startup. or There's so many different ways in which you can get to the type of information that you want without having to go through somebody trying to take money from you. And that's exciting to me. And this is one of those things. And this is one of the larger ones that can be kind of put on a pedestal for people to see and for younger kids to try to, you know, attain for. Absolutely. I I definitely agree with that. And I will say this as someone who has accrued a lot of that said that, um, you know, when when you grow up, and that's what what a lot of people are told is, you know, you need to go to college or else. 
and then you don't real you don't either know or you don't realize and don't get me wrong i think that the, the cases where you know it, it's not for everyone a lot of people do need that college education and environment but uh, what i know personally is that I, I did learn some things, but this is obviously anecdotal. I learned some things, but I don't necessarily know if, that I learned what I loved or what ended up helping helping me the most in, you know, I, I would say getting a job or necessarily holding the job or doing anything else I need is, you know, after college. But uh, I think a lot of people do, and I do think it's, uh, as mentioned earlier, the, the more different avenues there are, the better. And with the internet, it, it does allow you to pursue very, very specific or outside the box uh, interests and see if you can find a job in, those, in one of those interests. And things like this are another key or another step to making that even more ubiquitous. Yeah. I was told to work on my my jump shot and my rhyming schemes and <laughs> couldn't awful. nail those down. No. Nope. <laughs> Just couldn't nail them down. Nope. So I became a teacher. <laughs> well, you know. Nevertheless. The, is, the larger schools came to be and they came to be so important because people go to college and they'd make a lot of relationships. They'd meet a lot of people that are very just like them so that they can use those relationships moving forward. And that was before we had the internet and communities that you can join to meet like individuals like yourself. So that point of college, which was so important in the past, is no longer a point to go to college for. You can still meet a lot of really, really interesting, important individuals in a highly specified field if you decide which field you're ever going to join when you go to college. But if you just kind of laze around, smoke a lot of pot, go to class, you don't do anything, you get a general studies degree, you definitely, you've done nothing for yourself. And But waste money. But waste your money. But and then now you have all of these avenues and programs like this, like we just talked about, where the community that he's getting from being a part of this fellowship now is vastly more important than the money he receives. And we Absolutely. have different ways to do that now. Absolutely. And I would also say, and what you just mentioned was very interesting to me, that there's, if you have a certain interest, right, you know, 50 years ago, you need to find people with that certain interest at a college. And maybe it's a, it's an isolated college, you know, like one college that specializes in this or that. And here it's, if, and Joey, you know, for as far as I know, most of the people on the Augur team met each other because through internet forums or through it, someone on the internet and even if it was like a third degree where, okay, I met you through this person or through this person, I believe that's how you met Jack. And that's how something like Augur came to be. And, and you know, th that's something 50 years ago where that, that probably those relationships would have happened at a, at a college or they would have happened, you know, around a college or some kind of research institute. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We basically all met um, online or, or, you know, through a friend that I met online or, or through the Bitcoin or, or through in the community. Exactly. Ten years ago, I have an off the that wall. That was so weird. What's up, Corey? Go ahead. Ten, fifteen years ago, saying that I met all my like I met all my friends and people I work with online would have been so weird. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I did, but I was weird. But saying that now is just completely normal, <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I really I appreciate that and enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's somewhat normal to us. Maybe I think in a lot of other areas, it's not. You yeah, know, I think. Them. Where yeah, you're <laughs> but I, not really. But it just that that you know, I'd say I, I I don't know how old you you all are. I know how old Joey is, and I'm 31, and and we're I would consider all of us younger. So you know, I think to, to some that are 50 or 60, it's it's crazy. It's it's like when Joey and I were at that exponential finance conference, so many people would come up to us and ask where we're located, and we'd give each other a look like everywhere we're Why distributed. Does that matter? <laughs> 
and like and, and it was to some it was very like oh okay to some it was like that's weird you know and it was tough it's like well not really you know we don't have to pay for an office like there's a lot of there's a lot of cost savings into it and there's some things that aren't practical either you know that aren't as great but in the same token that's something you can't really that you have now that you didn't have 10 or 15 years ago so they're not used to that because they've never been in that environment so mm -hmm. So this is a this is going to be an off the wall question. Are you guys ready for it? It's for you, Tony, and you, Joey. All right. All right. Do you ever fear that Augur could one day become so predictive and so accurate that then, like governments, start seeking you out in a bad way? No. Okay. Cool. But Joey, I can answer that separately. I don't personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, the thing about governments, especially like like you know the U.S. government, is they're they're very you know just decentralized is too is too big a word for it, but they're very distributed in the sense that like there are agencies of the government that might dislike what we're doing, and there's ones that would love it. Um, so to give you an example, the CIA on their own website. That's like a you know 10, 15 page thing that's defending prediction markets and saying why they're an awesome tool. Um, so so it's it's kind of interesting you know that I, I don't I don't think they would you know it, it's kind of like you know Bitcoin or Ethereum you know once the cat's out of the bag the most you can do is is try to censor the edges um, and unless unless the person at the edge is, is super large um, it, it, it's very impractical to do you know. If someone's making a market with five thousand um, dollars, know, almost no matter what it's on, the, the government isn't really going to have the resources to care. Like they're not going to waste their time on it. Um, and if it were something like five hundred million dollars, you know, that's that's another story. Um, but either way, long story short, I think any sort of regulation you know, surrounding it would come at the edges as opposed to the core protocol itself. Um, it's the same way they regulated the internet. You know, HTTP is is, is a spec. Um, there's no like direct regulations surrounding HTTP, but there are surrounding like ISPs and things like that. Hmm. I had one of the nice. things to say on that too, and that's what you were saying that it could be so accurate. I think that that's that's one of the things where when I've there's a select few that I've kind of explained you know the basics on Augur to, and I always tell them you know if there's a sixty percent chance of something happening, there's a forty percent chance of, that it won't happen, and as soon as it doesn't happen, people are going to say, oh, see, you were wrong. And and that's 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 a mindset that I've received from a few people, not that's from a lot. And statistics works. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Sadly, the one that's coming to my mind was someone who was actually con considered a computer security expert, and I thought that was rather funny. I, I was like, yeah, but he's like, he, he, to him, it was saying it's just proof that you can't tell the you can't predict the future. I go, no, that's not that's not that's not exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that it increases the odds of it being correct and. And and understanding that is saying okay, so it's that you know you understand that it, if it doesn't happen, that that's also something that's taken into account when the when these final market odds are made. So I, I guess it's it's all in how you look at it, and, and that's why I don't think it'll ever be so accurate because with every time that it has an eighty percent chance of saying likely something is going to happen, when it doesn't happen and it hits into that twenty percent, someone out there is going to say okay, it's not as accurate as it thinks or something, and you're 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 going to see different perspectives on it and yeah, but you keep saying you keep saying it it's it's people 
This is a, this yeah, is a but, market of but people. I'm defining people as it in okay. the same way. <laughs> yeah, but I think people lose sight of that, and that it's these it's it's people making decisions, and there's a lot of fucking dumb people out there, and there's a lot of smart yeah. people out there, <laughs> and you have to take those into account, and they're not going to know the future. They're just going to have an idea about the future, like most of us do. We have an idea, and yep. Yeah, absolutely. I don't disagree with that at all. But <laughs> I, I just wasn't the one that called people dumb. Uh, but I, but you're right. I will call them dumb, <laughs> <laughs> myself included. So my idea of the future is, and if you guys remember the Fifth Element, when she put that pill in the microwave and then it turned into a giant Thanksgiving turkey, <laughs> we're like ten years away from that. I can feel it in my bones. I don't know about that. <laughs> I've, been I've been waiting. Tw I've been waiting like probably fifteen years for that myself, not twenty. Fifth dollar, twenty years old now. So, well, um, I guess we have one final question for you, Joe. We ask all our guests. It's kind of a tough one. Hope you're ready. Sure. All right. In ten words or less, can you describe Ethereum? Yeah, let's see. <laughs> that counts. You're already three words in. It's a distributed peer-to-peer -peer global computer. Mm. Distributed peer-to-peer -peer global computer. And that actually takes into account your, all right, let's see. So. Yeah, <laughs> you're still under 10, even with the, all right, let's Nailed see. It. Mm. Well... Thank you, Joey, and thank you, Tony. Of course, I love that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, congratulations, to to you. man. We're everyone. We're really excited on, on the podcast about what you're doing, where it can go. Um, we we think that it's going to be one of the largest, if not the largest, applications on the Ethereum network. For I mean, at least in the beginning of, of of the growth of the Ethereum network, it's going to put a lot of attention and and validity into the Ethereum network, especially after um, the DAO. Yeah, so let's just not mention it. Let's not talk, let's not no, talk this, about it. It's this. This is life. <laughs> Shit happens. That is true. Well, have a have a good evening. Have a good night, and uh, or a good day. And uh, thanks for coming East Coast, on, dude. <laughs> good night, See you guys. Take That's care. Right. I did there on Later, this guys. Right. Bye. Bye. And yeah, I'm back. And we're back, guy. We're back. Uh, that was the interview with uh, Joey, Joey Krug. Or yeah, could be I don't, you, you mentioned in the in the interim of us uh, waiting to start this recording that we don't do very many drunk episodes anymore. Yeah, we did it for like what? Like we we probably did what the first four truthful yeah. drunk episodes, and then we waited like thirty episodes or twenty episodes, and then did another one. I've been drinking just about every episode. Are you serious? Yeah, I oh, I live no. in Brazil and I have a very laid back job, and <laughs> there's not a lot going on. There's no reason why I shouldn't be drinking every day. Huh? Well, you know, you're a, uh, a jujitsu athlete, and you're drinking every day. Yeah. You're like the drunk, you're like the Jackie Chan of BJJ. <laughs> I don't go. I don't go to to jujitsu can, and I usually don't get drunk every day. I just have. I usually have a glass of whiskey when I come home from work and call it a day. Or me and Aaron will drink a glass of wine, a bottle of wine. Once upon a time, 
a man took many different forms of martial arts and he created a martial art called Jeet Kune Do. And you should take drunken boxing and mix it with BJJ. I would rather not strike anything. My fingers are my livelihood and I'm already screwing them up with jujitsu. I don't feel like punching things to make it worse. Oh, no, I don't know if you punch things so hard with drunken boxing. You kind of, like, hit shit with your knuckles in the back of your wrist. It's really strange. I don't want to do any of that. I got. T- I ain't got time for that. I Jiu-jitsu and data science and this podcast. Okay. That's all I have. Well, then why don't you just get drunk and do be- jiu-jitsu? I do that. Me and Aaron do that sometimes. <laughs> oh, is that what you call it now? That's weird, by the way. Call it jiu-jitsu, <laughs> huh? Yep. Hey, baby, you want to go back to the room and do some jiu-jitsu? No, we got mats. Don't try to make it legitimate. Anyway, this is a, sex joke. This is a long on. sex joke. Um, Chella, wow, what do you have for us? What do you have on the docket? I know you have you have things to talk about. Uh, Venezuela's inflation is set to top sixteen hundred percent next year because they're a shitty country. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I listened to there was a, a, a great um, recording of one of Andreas's. Once again, I'm quoting Andreas. What uh, one of Andreas's talks about? Well, the whole talk was was ancillary to what I'm discussing now. But someone asked a question, and then he answered it by talking about how geopolitical events are essentially causing the promotion of the adoption of Bitcoin because some type of country will come along and cause a lot of problems with the economy because the economy is failing. If anyone if you're listening to us, you probably listened to the Andreas episode. Our, the world economy is going in the shithole. And the countries that are leading this are probably diving into Bitcoin. It's like So people like Argentina and Venezuela are having this massive, massive inflation problem. And so people are opting out to go into Bitcoin. And the governments aren't liking this because they're trying to do the same thing they've been doing over and over and over again, which is adjusting interest rates and then nothing happens. And so they adjust interest rates, nothing happens. And people essentially don't want to just go down with a sinking ship and they put their money in Bitcoin. And then the governments are then having problems with Bitcoin. So they're then persecuting the people using Bitcoin, kind of like Russia banned it. And we're seeing this type of thing of oppressive governments screwing with people trying just trying to survive and keep their value in something that isn't going to fall into the ocean. Mm-hmm. So well, is, this, is the system reset like inevitable? Yes. I don't know, man. Historically, it's... statistically, fiat currencies don't last. In fact, the ones, the systems that we're on are the longest they've ever lasted. And look at what they're doing. Pitiful. It's fucking pitiful. So it's not going to last. There needs to be a new system. And I think Bitcoin came in right at the right time to shake all this shit up and say, hey, there's other options. There's other schools of thought. There's other philosophies that we never explored because the current one we're on, we've reached capacity in a bad way. And so that's... We're still really young. Huh? We're still really young. And I'm not sure when the world economy fails and people dive into Bitcoin that we're going to be able to handle it. Oh, dude. I've been working on my Andreas emulation. Impression? Go ahead. Do it. 
Uh, yeah, I'm gonna give it a shot. Hold up, let me drink a little bit of water first. Kill the time. Somebody sing a jingle. Well, unless we remove the block size limit, Bitcoin won't be good for Venezuela, right? Yeah, the block size limit limits the like is an artificial limit on the transactions we have now. But we've seen that like right just recently um, that there had something like um, I think it was shit. How many a shitload of transactions in about a hundred microseconds, which ended up being like millions of transactions in a block for a single for a single channel. So it was essentially it was a test of the Lightning Network, and if we can then expand those channels into multi multi multi-party channels then the lightning network is going to work but that isn't here yet and so when the lightning ne network comes this layer on top of the bitcoin protocol will allow for however many transactions you want uh whenever you want but until then we have this somewhat artificial limit on the number of transactions we put into the blockchain and if we have too many users of the Lightning Network, which we discussed in the previous episode, then we're still running into that artificial limit. So the block size has to increase, and how that happens is a, been the ongoing debate of the previous year and a half, and will continue to be the debate until it's moved. And then when that limit gets hit, it'll we'll debate about it again. You see, Bitcoin is like cereal. And what I mean by this, when I say that Bitcoin is like cereal, is that a lot of people just think that when you eat cereal, it's in the morning, right? You eat it with milk. But cereal is the chameleon of food. You can eat it as a snack. You can eat it as a meal. You can eat it as a topping on a pie. Cereal can be so many things. And so when you are thinking of Bitcoin and how it is going to interact with the world and everyone, it is like cereal. Not bad. Was that good? Not bad. It's not bad, right? I'm, like, I'm going to say not bad. It's, it's, there are definite hints of Andreas in there that I can see. Analogies. A little bit of tweaking and you nailed it. It sounds almost like, like a, just like an, like, I don't know. A Serbian? <laughs> I gotta work on my you need to You need to accentuate your words a little better. He definitely accentuates every single word. He pronounces every word very specifically. Work on that. Alright, Andreas. Hopefully you hear this and you come back in the near future and you give me my grade on how well I sound like you. Sounds like a Fabergé egg dealer. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and very specific. That is very. <laughs> I don't Look know what, you, what do you of think a Fabergé, Fabergé egg dealer looks like, Marcello? A Serbian. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That was straight to the point. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, right. Serbian uh, listeners. Nice to know you. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Because our Serbian audience is huge. You nope, can take a look. I look. You can actually look at where there. our Serbian listenership is if you go to our stats page. Uh, you can see yeah. exactly how many downloads we've had from Serbia. If yeah. you know where Serbia are... exists on the map. So that's the first prerequisite. You have to know where you exist on a map. If you're American, if you're from the U.S. like us, you probably have no clue where that is because geography is like 
like Ram. basically Ram. geography in America is like what are the American states? All right, that's it. That's all that matters. Moving on. Oh, dude, it's even worse for us. We're all from Texas, so it's essentially Texas and then not Texas. Yeah. I know where Texas is. I couldn't that. tell you where about 70% of the states are in our country, much less yeah. other countries. I know that if Canada Vermont, is America's like, hat, and Mexico is on border with Texas because it's right next to us. And that's – I know where Brazil is because I live there, but that's about it. I mean, I know where, I know where Europe is. I think Vermont's biggest uh, <laughs> one. It's not the greatest accomplishment in the world to say I know where Europe is. Yeah, I know. I, that, I know that's I know the point of you saying it. Are. I'm not good at geography. <laughs> one, th- what, what, I do know one thing though. The only thing Vermont is good for is uh, I think Vermont Avenue, on Monopoly. Man, always buy that property. I feel like everyone lands on that shit all the time. The railroads you think would be good because it's got four. Out of 40 spots, that gives you, you know, like, what is that, one-tenth? It's a pretty high probability compared to the rest of the squares. But, you know, the probability of you owning all the railroads is really low. So never go railroad strat. Ever. And all never right, we're done. we got to just plug our shit and go. Okay. I'm going to yeah, cut you off there about. with the railroad strats. Uh, never go orange <laughs> strat either. Those orange properties suck. Well, we're the BitcoinPodcast.com. We have a website. You can go to it. I just said it. I'm not going to say it again. I'm not going to repeat myself. No, I'm kidding. Bitcoinpodcast.com, powered by thecointelegraph.com, or cointelegraph.com, which is the website for the Cointelegraph, a media outlet for Bitcoin and blockchain technologies and other cryptocurrencies. They do it all. Um, Great team of writers. Um, It's a great company, and we're partnered with them, or... Not officially, oh. so I don't know if I can say that. We have Rewind. A Rewind. Psych. Just go there. We are working on integrating with Cointelegraph. How about that? There you go. It's almost done. Uh, what else? Fucking. What else do we do? The affiliation program. We talked about that. Gotta get affiliated. Um, at the BTC podcast on Twitter. That's our Twitter. If you don't know how to use Twitter, I don't know, man. Don't listen to the show anymore because we don't respect you. No, no, uh, no, 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 no. Twitter is not one of those things that everyone knows how to use. And it's not obviously worthwhile until you start using it. So, like, I hated Twitter until I started this podcast. And so, you know, follow us on Twitter. You'll see updates. You'll see all of our podcasts in real time as fast as... Whenever we have a decision, we put it on Twitter. So if we have a decision, you see it as quick as possible. That's the reason you use Twitter. You find companies you like, they tweet things as fast as they know them, and then you're always on the bleeding edge of what's going on. That's why you use Twitter. Follow us, thebtcpodcast.com. The The question I always ask myself is, do you want to be on the bleeding edge or the cutting edge? Think about how deep that is. That's quite profound, and I don't know the answer to that. Exactly. Nevertheless, damn it, again. I say every episode for like the past 10 episodes. Ugh. Facebook. You can search for <laughs> it. The Bitcoin Podcast. All right, we're done. I'm just gonna say, we're done. This is a great we're episode. Done. We're done. Yeah, that was a good one. Call it. Share this one with your friends, and you can say, hey, I listen to podcasts, and this is a good one. 
anyways uh play the outro play 